0: Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in uh, chapter 2, looking at verses 18 to 29. Uh, This is our fourth uh, church here in the seven letters to the seven churches. We're going to look at uh, this morning uh, the church at Thyatira. Uh, Some have called it the city of purple dye, and you'll understand why. But it's also known in in, in probably a lot of our Bibles, if you look at the heading above this church, it's referred to as the Corrupt Church. Not a title that I would like to have for our church, but the Corrupt Church, the church at Thyatira. We have been looking at a timeline, and I have a timeline uh, that I've been showing you each week, Uh, we've been looking at this timeline of the seven churches that span all of church history. And it's believed, and I see that as I look at church history, and I see these different time periods uh, throughout church history where the church took on, if you want to say, a different face. It had some different things going on within the church as a whole. And the church at Thyatira... Uh, which has a period of 590 AD to 1517 AD. Uh, Keep in mind that these years that are uh, up there, these are approximate years, but this is just when these particular things that we're going to learn about today uh, began to emerge in church history. And so... As I've been sharing about this timeline, we look at these seven letters to the seven churches in three different ways. We see them as being historical, but we also see them as being specific churches that John was writing to in his day. A specific church, as we're reading this morning, the church at Thyatira was a church in that day. But it also represents historically, and even prophetically a period of church history. We could also bring it down to the spiritual condition of a local church. We could even reduce it even more so into individual lives within those churches. And so we could look at all seven letters and be able to say, where do I line up? Where does this church line up? Which age are we in? And so that's the way my perspective, how I'm viewing these seven letters that were written. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning, Lord, and Lord, we're so thankful, Lord, for the relationship that we have with you. Lord, you saved us. You pulled us out of this world, out of this darkness, into your marvelous light. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as we look at this church at Thyatira, Lord, that there would be self-examination that would be taking place here this morning, that we would look inward. And Lord, if there's areas of repentance that we would repent, and if there's areas, Lord, of just rejoicing in what we have in you, Lord, let us rejoice. But Lord, I just pray that you would bless, Lord, your church this morning. We thank you for it in Jesus' name amen it's also important to note that these time frames here these churches these periods of time they overlap uh, they, they overlap they never really it's not like they come to this year and it stops they overlap but it's very possible that there is a progression of these churches As a matter of fact, if you look at each one and you see how church history has gone, it ends uh, with a church that is referred to as the lukewarm church, the church at Laodicea. And my prayer is that we're not going to be that church, Calvary Chapel Fellowship, a church that is lukewarm, whom Jesus said that he would spew or he would vomit out of his mouth. And so, but when we look at the church today, the church is in really has some issues that are going on in our church today. But within the church, there is always the faithful remnant, and we're going to see that even this morning. The city of Thyatira, it was in the day a very small and we might say insignificant city. But it was also a wealthy city uh, in the day. It was a trading city. Uh, it was actually just 45 miles southeast of our last church, the city of Pergamos. The city today, and I think I have a picture of it uh, here, um, right there, Akisar, if I'm saying that right, There's a picture of the city today, about 107,000 people that live there today. I've been showing you some slides. I have another slide here. I've been showing you some archaeological finds that they have. That is not all of it, but there's really within the center of this modern city now, not modern really, but this city now, there's really like a graveyard. of a bunch of stones, Roman stones, that go back to this time of Thyatira. There's not a whole lot to see there, like in some of the other churches uh, that I've shown you pictures of. This is actually really just in a park, and there's a bunch of houses around it, a bunch of businesses around it. But I think it's pretty cool to be able to go and walk around a bunch of Roman pillars and broken pieces of, in that time that's in there in that city, uh, today. But in their uh, archaeological digs and some of these things that they found in this ancient city, uh, they found uh, things written about the trade guilds that were in this city, which included coppersmiths that were there, potters, bakers, tanners, leather workers. There were those who dyed wool and linen. There were bronze smiths in this city. And so, as I already shared, it was a trading city. A lot of money came out of this city, a lot of trading from within it. But this guild, uh, or these guilds that were there that people would be a part of, one of the primary ones of this city were the dyers. Those who would uh, dye this wool, dye this fabric into a purple or a crimson red. And it was known in this particular city for this mater root. Now, the only people that really wore this, what we would call a purple or a crimson red, it was also produced that way, were people that were of royalty. People, kings, or there were people that had money. Nobody was able to really present, it was very expensive to be able to have any kind of a garment that would have been dyed uh, to this purple color made from this mater root. And we know that actually throughout various kingdoms, the Romans used it, the Egyptians used it. The Persians used it. It was always really symbolic of royalty. And it even is still today, this color of purple. We know from some of the archaeological things, digs there, that uh, the city had three gymnasiums within this city. It had a colonnade, a portico of of 100 columns, an agora. Where all this shopping would be done. There were several pagan temples also within this city. They had the patron, the sun god Apollo, was the main one. Now mythology, as we've been looking at this at these various churches, mythology uh, talks about Apollo, and he was the father of Zeus. Now we've already talked about the god Zeus and. One of his sisters was Aphrodite. We've already talked about her. Uh, She was the god of lust and beauty and pleasure. And then one of his children was Asclepius, who was the god of medicine. And we learned about that last week. And so all of these cities really dealt with, in the Christian church, dealt with idol worship they had to contend with the idol worship that they lived and lived amongst in their city pergamus as you remember from last week was a church that was married to the state and that's really what the church in that church period was is that the church began to intermingle with politics being married to the state And it was really with that period in church history that the church began to fall into compromise. Now, we know that Pergamos was a city that we're told that it was the throne of Satan, that actually Satan moved his seed into the city of Pergamos. False doctrine and idolatry was affecting the, the church there. Christians were even buying into it. It appears that chronologically, that as you look at these churches, that Laodicea is going to be kind of at the tail end of all this. And you can see how it just kind of progressively gets worse. And so, again, what church will we be? What church will be that last days church? Even before the rapture of the church. We know that within these cities that there was various things that the Christians had to contend with. in, In serving the Lord, following the Lord, serving one another within the church, doing good works. They had to contend with all the things that went around, just like we do. We have to contend with the environment, the spiritual environment that is around us. And many Christians get sucked into it, or we make a stand against those things in our own personal walk. The Christians here in this city of Thyatira, they, they came to a place where in their own hearts and in their own minds... I believe that they thought they were doing the right thing. They believed they were doing the good works. There were good things that were actually coming out of this church in their midst. And to me, this is the scary part. You can be a Christian, you can be a church that is producing good works. Yet there can be something majorly wrong within the church. We need to know that Jesus is always more concerned about your walk than he is about your work. And a lot of times Christians get that backwards. They think that God is most pleased with the work they do, the things they do for him. Instead of looking inward and saying God is most concerned with my heart. In my mind and my motives. None of us will ever be able to fool God. We can't fool Him. We can't even disguise our hearts and our motives with good works. Have you ever done that? So to speak, we disguise the condition of our heart by the amount of things that we are doing for the Lord. And God says, you know what, I I want your heart to be unveiled. I want to see the condition of your heart, not just your works. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Wow. I have to think that those are probably, to me, those are some of the scariest words in the Bible. I never knew you. It doesn't say I used to know you. But in all your religiosity, I never knew you. It was during this period of church history that we see the rise of Roman Catholicism. Some of you maybe have come out of Catholicism, been a part of that. And and even in this history, it's it's not just the Roman Catholic Church because there's other religions that maybe could fall into this. Other denominations that could fall into this. But this period of Roman Catholicism that started with Gregory the Great, who was the elected bishop of Rome, September 3rd of 590 A.D. Now, according to the Catholic Church, there have been 266 popes, starting with the Apostle Peter, who they claim to be the first pope. By the way, that's not true, but that's what they claim. The current pope today, Pope Francis, in 2013, he was brought into that position. 266 of these popes. It was during this period that is referred to as the Dark Ages that this papal church began to emerge. People that were under the authority of a pope and the papal authority in the day. But it was during also this time that many false doctrines began to emerge within the church during this period. And what happened was the papal church at the time, they, be, they took the, the Bible out of the hands of the common people. They took the Bible away from the people said, you, you don't have the ability to read. That's just for us to read to you. And you never want to do that. You never want to pull the Bible away from the people. Because when you do, that's when false doctrines begin to emerge. It's what was happening during this period of time. The people had the Word of God removed from their hands. False doctrines began to creep in. The people began to stop. Questioning and stop examining the things that they were being taught. They were just taking it on board. There's a real caution in that. You see, you're to examine the things that I even teach. You're called to look at your Bible and examine, in light of the Bible, the things that are being taught. Does it line up with the Word of God? That's what's important. You need to test those things. And the method in which you test it is the Word of God. For us Protestant Christians, we believe in what's called Sola Scripture. And Sola Scripture, by definition, just means this, by Scripture alone. And so everything that we practice, and that's what I try to do within this church, everything we practice as a Christian, if we believe and we're of that mindset, it needs to line up with the Word of God. Everything we practice, everything we believe doctrinally needs to be in the Word of God. But during this period of church history, even the Catholic Church at the time, they brought in that Scripture and church tradition were just as valid as the other, one or the other. Church, scripture, church tradition was a valid source something that we should accept something that we should honor something that we should give devotion and reverence to if it came down from the pope to the people as something that was doctrine something that we practice as a church you should accept that the problem with that is that you couldn't find it in the bible and that's a very dangerous place to be by the way catholicism today 1.2 billion people Out of the 7.5 billion people in the world today, 16% of the world population falls under the heading of Catholicism. That's a lot of people. False doctrines being brought into the church. Baptismal regeneration. Purgatory. The worship of images and relics. Indulgences. Confessionalism. uh, Transubstantiation, penance, Mariology, the worship of Mary. All of these things coming in to the practice of many religious people. It wasn't going to be until the Reformation. And that's going to be the next church that we're going to look at. The church at Sardis. The Reformation that would come and so to speak, bring the church, begin to bring the church back in line with the scriptures. We've got a picture uh, of, I think, of the church where Martin Luther nailed his, I don't know if we have it up there, the 95 Thesis uh, on the Castle door in Whitbrook. It's the place where uh, this reformation began to take place. That happened on October 31st. And 1517, and so that's why we have this period of reformation that began in this next church of Sardis. Let's read our letter this morning, verse 18. And to the angel, or the messenger, we might say, the pastor, the elder, of the church in Thyatira arrived. The name Thyatira, it actually means... Sacrifice of labor, by definition, or a perpetual offering. To the angel of Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God. Notice, this is keep in mind, this is Jesus writing this letter to this church. These things says the Son of God, which is a title that points to his deity who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine grass. Now remember that each one of these letters to each of these churches keeps going back to chapter 1. Look at your Bibles at chapter 1, verse 14. It says this in the description that John saw of the glorified Jesus that his head and hair were white like wool. As white as snow. And his eyes like a flame of fire. Which is really in a way it's telling us and telling the church. Jesus is, I see your secret sins. I see the things in your heart. I see the things that no one else can see, but I see them. I see all the good. And I see all of the bad. I see all the immoral things. I see the bad doctrine. I see the compromise within the church. I see the wrong motives. In other words, God sees it all. And not only does He see it all, but He's also able to judge it perfectly. He's a righteous judge. And He will judge every church and every individual individual righteously, in righteous judgment. We're told that the church at Ephesus, that first church that we learned about, had many good works. But they had left their first love. All this good, but, but you've left your first love, and you need to repent. The church of Pergamos that we already looked at. They were holding fast to his name and they were not denying the faith, even under persecution. But there were some within that church that were holding to the bad doctrine of Balaam and not then that of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, I also see that. I see the good works you do, but I see that you are, there are some within your midst that are holding to bad doctrine. It's very important for us as we read these letters that we individually search ourselves.
1: We don't just try to come under the
0: umbrella of the whole thing. But where am I at? In my walk with the Lord, in my relationship with the Lord. We're told that his feet were like fine brass in that image that John saw of Jesus. Again, in in verse 15 of chapter 1, his feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace. Which in scripture, we always know that bronze and brass, it, it speaks of judgment. That's what Jesus is saying to this church at Thyatira. You remember the brazen altar that sits outside the temple that the priest would bring that animal sacrifice to put onto that brazen altar, that altar of judgment, and that animal would be completely consumed by the fire. That's the image, that's the picture I believe that Jesus is wanting the church at Thyatira to see that God must and God will judge sin. But what's interesting is that one of the guilds in this city was the art of fine brass. They had that in the city. They knew fine. And here's Jesus in this picture of him as fine brass. They knew that what that represented. Jesus, he continues in his letter to them in verse 19 with his commendation. He says, I know your works love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. To me, this is the scary part. This is the part that when I read this, I go, wow, that's awesome. They're actually doing more works now than they were when they first got saved. It's actually a long list. It's the longest list out of all these letters of commendations. A long list. It's a commendable list. And it's a list, I think, as a pastor, if I saw these things or I see these things in church, man, praise the Lord. Look what God's doing. Just to look at those outward things. But as I already said, God's most concerned with what's going on inside of us. In our hearts. We all know, as Christians, that we're not saved by works. Works will never save you. Works will never get you into the kingdom. But we are called to do good works. Good works will come out of a true salvation, a true believer's heart. I believe that there were believers in this church at Thyatira that were actually doing these works and these acts. And they were real. Jesus tells this church, and He says to the church today, to this church, I see your works. I see your deeds and your love for each other. I see your service amongst each other. I see how you minister to one another here. I see your faith working. I see the patience you have as you serve and you endure. I also see that your your last works are more than your first works. You're actually growing. You're actually doing more now than you've ever done for the Lord. But remember what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. He said to them, "You need to repent. and you need to do the first works. In other words, they were, the church's Ephesus, they were uh, beginning to lose their zeal. They had works, but they were losing their zeal and their passion for it. When we read this list to the church at Thyatira, it's almost as if if you stopped there, you wouldn't have to go any further. You would say that this is another one of the churches here, of these seven churches that Jesus didn't have anything against. Because look at the list. By all outward appearances, they were doing what Christians should do. But then we come to verse 20. Look at your Bible. It starts with the word, nevertheless. We might say, I thought we were doing so good. I, I, I thought we were doing good after that commendation. But nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow, and that's worthy of underlining in your Bibles. Because you allow, that speaks of your will. That woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Maybe this woman Jezebel, or this woman that was in this church or in this city, She may have been one of the prominent women in the guilds. This was big business within this city. And she was bringing in this doctrine, this sexual immorality within the church. uh, These banquets and these things that would come along with the guild banquets was inviting the church members to partake. To join the guild, to partake of these things, and then to say, and it's all right. It's okay that we do these things, but not to the Lord. Nevertheless, the problem was that the church there, in some translations, mine reads, because you allow, some translations read, You tolerated it. Or we might say you turned a blind eye to it. It was going on within the church and you just looked the other way. You didn't want to deal with it. And maybe you were a partaker of it to some degree. You tolerated it. You see, they were allowing this teaching of Jezebel to exist they were not testing the teaching that she was bringing. They weren't testing it by the Word of God. And that's the problem in the church today. There are so many Christians that do not know their Bibles well enough, and they don't do the diligence to put to it to test the things that they're being taught. And they fall trap to it. They fall trapped to the compromise. And all the while they're doing all these things that they would call good works within the church. Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, you have allowed this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Notice she's self-appointing herself. She calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants. You see, there's no self-appointments when it comes to these positions. When God gives gifts to the church, they come from God. God raises up those people within the church that would be a prophet, a teacher, whatever those giftings might be, they come from God. This woman was self-appointed. And I would tell you that there are a lot of prophets and prophetesses that are self-appointed today. Well, I'm a prophet in the church. I'm a prophetess within the church. self appointment A very dangerous place to be in. I believe that the church today is living under the pressure of those who are saying, let's not be so technical about all these doctrinal differences. It actually just brings a lot of division within the church. Let's relax on some of this stuff. And there's a lot of relaxing going on with a lot of things biblically. And I have to think, what does the Lord think of that? I think we need to spend a little bit more time from this pulpit talking about things that really matter. Like some of the social issues that we have going on in our world today. We need to talk about those things a little bit more. You see, that people don't just need the Bible. They need to understand how we're having to confront these various social issues in our world. And what I say to that, they're important. But it's not the place for this pulpit to be just talking about social issues. You need the Word of God. You need to know the truths of God's Word. And all the social issues will answer themselves. You'll get it all figured out if you just stick to the Word of God. So don't get caught up. When you're finding various churches that want to just get involved in politics and social issues and all these things, and then the Word of God begins to say, take backseat to that. Jezebel calling herself a prophetess. Being a prophetess is not a bad thing. We, we find numerous women throughout Scripture that were prophets. We know that Miriam, the sister of Aaron, and Deborah, and Judges, and and Isaiah's wife, and Anna, and the daughters of Philip the Evangelist are named out as prophets in our Bibles. That itself is not wrong. It's the self-appointment. And it's not only the self-appointment, but the doctrine that she was bringing, the morality that she was bringing into the immorality that she was bringing into the church John wrote in 1 John 4:1, beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits this is for you and I to take on board test the spirits whether they are God because many false prophets have gone out into the world it's our job to test the prophets what are they saying does it line up with the word of God oh, I can't even find it in the Word of God, what they're saying, then reject it. No. Don't, we don't follow things unless it's in the Word of God. Or at least I don't. And I think it's good for you also. Jesus says in verse 20, He says, she calls herself a prophetess to, do, to teach to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. This is in the church. Remember James in Acts chapter 15 when he had to go to Jerusalem to the council in Jerusalem. He had to sort out some issues that the church was having there. And he came to a conclusion that he left the church with in Jerusalem. He says, therefore, and these are what we read in in Acts 15, 19. Therefore, I judge that you should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. There's a problem between Jew and Gentile and how they were coming in to salvation. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality from things strangled and from blood he just brought it down to those two things here is this uh, self-professing prophetess that's bringing these things into the church at the sin of jezebel now jezebel was a phoenician princess in the old testament and became the wife of King Ahab, a wicked king. The king of the northern tribes of Israel. She was thought to be the one who brought the worship of Baal into the northern kingdom of Israel. You can read of that in 1 Kings chapter 16. There's some of the Baals right there, uh, little images. Idol Maker was big business that have been something you want to have on your mantle in your home. Baal worship. And here is Jezebel in the Old Testament bringing this to the children of Israel and to the altars of Baal. Now I have another picture, I think, uh, there. I've been to this high place uh, where Jeroboam and uh, Jezebel was Involved in this, in bringing this Baal worship to Tell Dan in the Northern Kingdom, I've been there. Kathy and I we walked, and it's the most eerie place you want to be when you hear and know what Baal worship was about. That still remains today. That's where all this took place. And here's this church at Thyatira having a prophetess that is referred to as Jezebel. She was causing them to commit spiritual fornication. Making images that they could worship. And teaching the church and telling the church as a prophetess, this is okay. The church... In Scripture, is the Bride of Christ. You're the Bride. And we're called to be faithful to Him as His Bride. And we're called to only worship Him. You see, fornication is having sex outside of marriage. But there is also a fornication and a committing of spiritual idolatry that can also happen with Christians. We need to be careful about spiritual idolatry. Jesus, or we read in our Old Testament under the law in Exodus 20, that you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any uh, carved images. Don't, don't do any of those things. And don't bow down to any of them. It could be that these guild uh, workers and, and, and becoming part of this these guilds that were there in that city, that it was requiring the Christians to be a part of it. It's a scary place to be in when you're in business for yourself and you're having to make a decision between business and spiritual. And how much compromise has gone on between those two things. The sin of Jezebel was the worship and the introduction of idols into the church. It was... The banquets that they would have in the guild. Which often included sexual immorality that would take place during these banquet feasts that they would have. But you see, if you were not part of the guild, if you didn't join it, you didn't register in the guild, you didn't take part in the banquets, you didn't do those things, you were never going to make any business. You were never going to do well In your trade. You were excluded from these exclusive guilds that were there in that city. One commentator wrote this about the sin of Jezebel. Her theology, as spread by her counterparts in the Thyatira church, would be especially attractive in that members wrestled with the matter of participation in workers' guilds. To reject guild membership would cause one to suffer economic deprivation. However, to be part of a guild required participation in its pagan religious festivities The temptation to compromise one's Christian beliefs must have been strong for many church members. Between business and my faith, which one am I going to put my allegiance to? And then look at verse 21. And our Lord is so gracious, isn't He? I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. And by the way, we don't know that, that this name Jezebel, it could be referring to the system that, uh, or to the sin of Jezebel in the Old Testament and that system of Jezebel that was operating there in the church in this city It could have been just a type of the Jezebel of the Old Testament. But I do believe that it was a literal woman that was a prophetess within the church operating under the sin of Jezebel. But the Lord gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. But then we read, and she did not. She became a picture, if you want to say, of those in the church who will not repent. We're told that she would not repent. And here's God showing how slow to anger He is. How He's given her time to repent. And it makes me think, how many times has God given you that extra measure of time to repent. He's given you that, that time when you've walked in your sin and you've dabbled in these things. And it, he's given you time to repent. But the scary part is, is that we would not repent. We won't turn. Even as patient and slow to anger as He is, we refuse to repent. And all the while, God is saying to the church at Thyatira, I must judge sin. I will judge sin. It will come. I love you. I want you to repent. But if you won't, I must judge sin. Here's the warning verse 22 Indeed I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds casting her into a sick bed where her fornication was Taking place, or the fornication that people were dabbling in upon a bed it was now being said of her that she would be cast into a sick bed. Those who committed adultery with her shall be thrown into great tribulation. Or we might say, be thrown into great distress. You see, there's a consequence for sin. There is not one sin that we ever commit that God misses and that he won't in some way judge or deal with. We reap what we sow. And it may seem for a while that it goes unnoticed. But it doesn't by God. We think that as time passes, maybe he forgot. But he doesn't. He says, I will, verse 23, kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know, and this is important, listen, and notice it's all the churches. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, (plural). And I will give to each one of you according to your works. It's probable that it's not speaking of her literal offspring here. But probably more of her followers. Those who are following in her sin. And then the idol worship. You won't escape. The one who searches the mind and the heart, he says, you won't escape it. In Psalm 7-9 we read, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and the mind. Jesus And all of his patience and his love as he waits upon this church to repent. He finishes with some words of encouragement. Why? Because there are always those in the midst. It's not like the whole church of fire and fire was corrupted and every person in it. As a matter of fact, there were those faithful men and women within that church that were persevering. That were not. They were saying no to that. That's wrong. We're not going that direction. Now, I, now to you I say, notice how he's speaking to others. Now to you I say, and to the rest, In Thyatira. Do you see the distinction here? And to the rest of you that are in Thyatira. As many as do not have this doctrine. Or have not known the depths of Satan. As they say, I will put on you no other burden. The Lord knows those who are His. And, And keep in mind that with any church... Any local church, any place, house of worship. There are people that are in there that don't even know the Lord. There are people that are in there that are compromising in their walks, And then there is the faithful remnant of people that are following the Lord, not perfectly because none of us do, but following the Lord and being diligent to follow and to stay true to the things of God. were those that did not follow this doctrine. And it was probably rough on them. It was hard on them. And it'll be hard on you. If you make a stand for Christ, it'll be difficult at times. Try it in a place of business. Try it at school. Try to make a stand for Christ. And it will cost And I believe that it was costing these Christians at Thyatira something to say no to following these things. I'm glad that God doesn't just lump us all together. Aren't you? God sees the heart of every individual. He doesn't just put us all in one basket and go, man, you're all a corrupt church. Wait a second. I'm faithfully following the Lord. I'm seeking to, you know, Lord. We're not all lumped into one basket. And I'm thankful for that. Not every one of the Christians there was into the depths and the teachings of Jezebel they were holding true they were staying away from it what he says in verse 25 but hold fast what you have till I come hold fast hang on endure stay to what you know is truth. don't deviate from the path Stay right where you know you should be. No matter how much the temptation wants to draw you into it. Don't give up. Remain faithful to the end, church. If we can just do that. As this world gets darker and more corrupt. And even if the church becomes more and more corrupt. Will we be swept away with the church or the part of the church that gets swept away? Or will we remain faithful? Will we resist the evil that's out there? Will we keep fighting for sound doctrine within the church? Will we hold on to the truths that we know and not turn back or turn away? And we'll do it until the day he comes back. We're running a race. We're all in it. We're all going to get to the finish line. Some are going to get there just dragging over. They're going to be on their knees all bloodied up, but they're going to cross the line. And we're all going to get to that finish line in different ways. But God, that we would be faithful to the end. And then in verse 26. We read, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. It's a promise to you and I. It was a promise to them. It's a promise to the church today. It's a promise to you and I today. He who overcomes. I've shared this scripture to you each week out of 1 John 5.5 5, who the young overcomers are. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Then you're an overcomer. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? He's the Christ. He's the Savior of the world. Do you believe that? Then you are an overcomer in Christ Jesus. Remember, it's not how you start your walk as a Christian, but how you finish your walk that counts. That's the most important. He who keeps my works until the end. Jesus in this, he's promising the faithful. That they're going to reign in that millennial kingdom. Did you know that you're going to reign as kings and priests with Christ for a thousand years in a millennial kingdom that is yet to come? It will follow the seven-year tribulation period. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God And of Christ. And shall reign with him a thousand years. Verse 27. And Jesus. He Jesus. Shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is during that millennial kingdom. They shall be dashed to pieces. Like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father. Jesus is quoting here. From Psalm chapter 2. Verse 9. It's going to be during this millennial kingdom where there will be rule, and the Lord is going to rule in righteousness from the throne of David there in Jerusalem. And we're going to be with him during that time. And he says, And I will give him a morning star. I believe words that speak of Jesus Jesus is the morning star. According to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. That's Jesus Christ. I will give him the morning star. I want that. I want that in my life. I need Jesus. I need more of him. If you're here this morning, and we close in verse 29, excuse me, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each letter closes that way because the Lord knows as he's writing this letter there are people sitting in those churches sitting in all the churches that are either hearing or they're not hearing they're either taking it on board or it's just another message It's another message but he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the Spirit that's capitalized what the Spirit sends to the churches plural and so Let's have our worship team come.